evening, ladies, and welcome to our new title, Torah with the Takeaway. And this is Parshas Chayesara. And I thought it'd be interesting, intriguing, since I haven't done this for probably eight, nine years, and I'm, I've definitely upgraded it and made it much better. I want to profile a little bit to the character traits, the character of our matriarch, Sarah Imenu. That's what I thought, and we can definitely take away many lessons from her character. Uh, so I'm taking some episodes from her life, and we're going to ask some questions on it and come out with some amazing answers that are going to be life-changing lessons for all of us. Okay, I'm entitling the title of this class tonight, we're calling it Faith and Laughter, because that's what she personifies. But let's ask our, I have five questions for tonight, I hope the Pesach Seder will excuse me, but I have five questions for tonight, and we're going to come up with some amazing answers. Question number one, we'll do the first Pasuk in Chayasar because that encompasses our whole life and there is a question to be asked about it. And you all learned this, I'm sure, as children, but let's get it on an adult level here. And it says she, she lived, Chayasara was Meashana, Vesrim Shana, Veshavashanim, 100 years and 20 years and seven years. Strange way. In fact, it's the only time in the whole Torah that her life is broken down to little capsules like that. Instead of just saying 127 years, we break it down like that. And Rashi explains why. He says, at 100, she was like 20. At 20, okay, 100, like, she was like 20 with her regarding sin. Because a person is not culpable from heaven. They're not punishable for their sins until they're 20. Shem kind of a little bit of an excuse given for the teenage years. Uh, even though bar mitzvah you're obligated, but punishable misam in a shemaim is only after 20. So she's that innocent that nothing, at 100 she was as innocent as she was at 20. And then it says at 20 she was as beautiful as she was at 7. So that's what Rashi says. And then at the end it, it says shnei chaye sarah. It says the, the days in the life of Sarah. Why do we repeat it? So Rashi says kulam shavim letova. They're all equal in goodness. So we have two questions. Uh, well, this one question is going to be broken down into two parts. First of all, we're comparing sin and beauty. They're two different categories totally. To say her beauty, who cares what her beauty was? Is that really so important to the Torah? Why are we mentioning beauty in the same breath, so to speak, as sin? Like, why are we putting those two together? And beauty is a gift from God. Like, what you know? Also, isn't a 20-year-old much better looking than a 7-year-old? The 7-year-old, you know, has a few teeth that fell out, and she could be wearing uh, knee, knee socks that are falling down. Hello, Froma. Welcome. Um, anyways, so the, uh, you know, if, 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 how could a 20-year-old be compared to a 7-year-old? 7-year-olds are more beautiful than 20-year-olds. I mean, 20-year-olds are more beautiful than 7-year-olds. 20-year-olds is the age all the boys from Lakewood want to marry, right? 18 to 20, you know. After that, they're all nebuch, you know. But uh, how could you be compared to a seven-year-old? And um, now we, it's given, by the way, that Sarah was one of the four most beautiful women that ever lived. But still, how is that mentioned? And then the second part of Rashi, when it says, Kulam shavim letova, that all her years were equal in goodness, Sarah had a hard life. She was childless most of her married years. Until 90 years old. I mean, it's a long time to be childless. She was taken against her will to Avimelech and to Paro, very difficult. She went with Avram through the famine and through difficulties with Hagar. And we say all her years were equally good. I think some years were better than others, to be honest. So how does, what does Rashi mean when he says they're all equally good? That's question number one. Question number two is, why did such a chaste woman, pure chaste woman, tested with being taken against her will to some king's harem. Like, what was the meaning behind that? Like, it's it's a pretty horrific fate for such a pure lady, like the lady from Mayasharim, to be, you know, schlepped into all that. How, Or even maybe she's from Kiryat Sefer. How could she be schlepped in to, um, you know, to go against her will to such terrible places? Number three, something I haven't talked about for years, and I want to clear, I, I think I have a better take on it this year, you know, it talks in the Parsha of, um, it, it speaks when when the angels, when the Malachim came to Sarah and they told her, you're going to be having a child. 
It says, Sarah laughs inside, albeit. She doesn't laugh externally, but inside, like there's a little bit of, come on, lady my age is going to have a child. Like that's her, her reaction. And then Hashem tells Avram, tell your wife that she laughed. And Avram said, you laughed? He says, I didn't laugh. And he said, no, you laughed. What, what is that deal over there? And the interesting thing is that Avraham, if you look it up, I, I don't want to quote verses now to you because I saw this morning it schlepped out a long time. And I'm trying to, you know, make this timely for all of you. Anyways, Avraham, when he hears the news from Hashem that he's going to have a child with Sarah, he laughs. So then why is she criticized for laughing? And then to end this whole question, what did they name their son that they finally have? Yitzchak, which means he will laugh. Isn't that interesting? What is the whole thing with laughing? Why is she criticized for laughing? Why could Avram do it and not her? And what's the whole business why they're laying their child Yitzchak? What's, what's the big deal there? That's the third question. Number four, we're going to talk a little bit. Another questionable episode in Sarah Imenu's life is that of Hagar. Now, she introduces Hagar to Avram. She sees she's childless. She feels maybe the merit of her giving from herself and she's giving another woman to her husband and she conceives maybe Hashem will have mercy on her. She gives him Hagar and Hagar kind of like gets pregnant the first night after being with Avram and then she's all of a sudden her mistress, I mean Sarah who was her Rebbe so to speak, her teacher, Sarah is you know lessened in her eyes, she's diminished in her eyes and what happens is that um, that it says that uh, you know, so Sarah is told, Sarah, uh, you know, tells Avram, you, you didn't do the right thing. You, 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 you know, she's, look how she's rocking around as if she's, if she's the teacher here and I'm the student. Like, it's not proper. So it says, that Sarah afflicted, whatever that means, we'll get into it. Sarah afflicted Hagar. And then Hagar runs away and a malach, an angel, catches up with her in the desert. There's a whole episode there, but we're not going to cover Hagar tonight. But anyway, she, she asks Sarah, I mean, he asks her, you know, what happened? And she says, I was afflicted. And he says, go back to your mistress. <laughs> and then go back to her, you know. So what is the affliction there, right or wrong? And why, what, what, what can we learn from that whole episode? And last but not least, by the Akeda, by the sacrifice of Isaac, which last Parsha ended with, we're told, the Rashi tells us, why is the death of Sarah connected with the sacrifice or the binding of Isaac? When Sarah heard the news about the Akeda, that her son was being prepared to be slaughtered. These are the important words in Rashi that we're going to pay attention to. And almost he wasn't slaughtered. That's what it means, literally. Her neshama left her body and she passed away. Now, it's, of course, horrific thing for a mother to hear, you know, the whole story of the Akedah. It's terrifying and it shows what a test it was for Abraham that, you know, but Sarah was supposed to be superior to Abraham as far as being a prophet is concerned. She was a bigger, uh, she had more prophecy, a more higher degree of prophecy, we're told by the Gemara, than her husband. How could it be that Abraham has this test of the Akedah, he passes it, and Sarah just hears about it, and she passes away from it? What does it mean? She failed the test of the Akedah? What does it mean? How do we understand that? And why did she pass away? And why is Rashi wording his language, Kimat Shalonishchata? What does that mean? Shalonishchat, that he almost wasn't slaughtered. What does that mean? Okay, those are our questions, ladies. Let's roll up our sleeves, but not past the elbow. And let's get into some amazing answers and life-changing lessons from this Parsha, Parsha's Chaya Sarah. The way we're, let's start out with the first lesson that we learned from Sarah Imena's life. And this, the first question that we asked about the 120 and seven years. We're going to be speaking about that first. Rav Shimon Schwab brings down a Medrash Rabbah in Parsha's Noach, which tells us, Yodea Hashem Yemei Samimim. God knows the days of the pure, of the perfect, the perfect ones. Benachlasam li olam tiyeh. 
and their inheritance will be with them forever. Kishem Shehem that's a, 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 the Pasuk brought down. He, know, he knows uh, she, the days of the perfect ones, and they'll always have an inheritance. It says, Kishem Shehem Tmimim, just like the Tzadikim are perfect, Kachshnosam Tmimim, also their days are perfect. So Rav Shimon Schwab, Zechron explains the following. He says, a person can live a hundred years and use very little of their days in service of Hashem. How many, how many minutes a day can we say we serve Hashem? You know, we have things we have to take care of, especially women, especially if they're a working woman. They, they have a job. They're sitting there having to do a good job at work. And then they come home and have to wash dishes and what, all the other things that a woman has to do, take child care and whatever else she's doing. But how much, what's the percentage of that life that goes to serve Hashem? Really, if a person let themselves go, it could be very little. And a tzaddik, apparently, the thing that defines a tzaddik is he consecrates all his time for service to Hashem. So this is really what made Sarah very unique, that all those, we break it, broke it down into capsules. All 127 years were used to serve Hashem. The Chidush Rim says something a little bit learned, a little bit lumdish. So I'm throwing this in for all you brilliant women. Um, he says the following. If you could say that Sarah at the end did tshuva from love, and that turns all your sins into mitzvahs, which we've explained in the past, um, that wouldn't apply here because it doesn't just say her, her numbers in a general way. It breaks them down to show that every little unit of her life was perfect. She didn't have to do tshuva on it. In other words, everything she went through, she always used to serve Hashem. Of his real towers, the Chron of the Bracha tells us that when it says Hakol Shavim Latova, when Rashi says all her days were equally good, it means that no matter what happened, she took the negative and made the best of it. No matter what was going on. A lot of times people say, well, now I have to put everything on pause because I have this hard episode in my life. Sarah didn't give herself that excuse. She used her time wisely. Every moment she realized that the days are, you know, are going to be accounted for. We even see by her husband, Avram, it says, Avram Zakain Babayamim. He came with his days. Like he perfected his life. He tried to use his days for the best. That's the expression we see in Uvalatzion and the prayer that we say at the end of Davening and Shachris and Minchan Shabbos. It says, um, and we ask Hashem, please plant, uh, the, the, or we, Hashem planted rather, Hashem planted, uh, life forever, eternal life in our midst. He gave us the potential every moment to have eternal life from the moment we're experiencing. And no two moments are alike. And we have an opportunity to use those moments for the best. So, in other words, all the time she was barren, she used that opportunity for self-growth. She didn't say, you know, poor me. She just says, no, what can I do for Hashem? We mentioned this many times before, but I always have to sneak it in once a year or else I feel like I'm, I, I, you know, I'm wasting my, my life here. And here's what I'm going to say. A beautiful thought from a Wolfson Shlita for the Rav of Amuna Sisral in Borough Park deep thinker, brilliant man. I love the way he expresses this. When he talks about Baba Yamim, coming with days, he teaches us that time is not an essence that we go through. Like everyone has this concept in the secular world of time machines, you know, they, they, science fiction, they had a whole thing with that, that you're going, you the Midos machine had it, that you're going through time. We are not going through time. He says, you have to picture every morning in your living room, a big canvas drops down, and it already has a background. Today, this kid is going to mess up the house, or today the car breaks down, or today, whatever it may be, that's your background. You've got to paint the foreground. That's 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 how time is. Time is a gift. Kababayamimi came with days. Days have to have be utilized. What are we doing with our days? What are we making? How are we? What are we doing with our days? What are we making them into? So it's a commodity that we have to make good use of. And this is what Sarah did. And that's why every day was counted and utilized for the sake of heaven. And she didn't just forget that mission for a moment. 
Whereas most of us get caught up in the, the here and now, and we get all upset about this and that and this and that. And she was beyond it. She had a bigger picture. How am I? I know my days are numbered. How am I going to use this to serve Hashem? No matter what it was, that is really something, and that's what why she's our matriarch. Next thing, the um, Rishon Shwadron takes it a little bit further. He says. That when it's, Rashi says, Kulam Shavim Latova, there is an early commentary called the Torah Shalema. And this early commentary tells us, it didn't say Kulam Shavim Latova in the original Rashi. It said, Kulam Shavim Lasason Ulasimcha. Further, he said, Rav Shalom Shodran said that she said that, that, that Rosh Sarah's life was not just good, she made good out of bad, but she was always joyful, joyous. Now that's really hard for us people in our time and age to understand how can you make it joyous when you know when when times are not joyous because it says ain't tovla tzadikim milvad ritzon konam there's nothing good for a tzaddik except to do what his creator or her creator asks of them that's what makes them happy and is that what gets us down we get down when we get into ourselves when we start saying oh what was me this is going on and that is going on a tzaddik will flip it and say Am I doing rest in Hashem? That's my that's my measuring stick of how good I'm 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 having a life right now. If I'm doing rest in Hashem, I'm happy. If I'm not doing rest in Hashem, I'm unhappy. Is that incredible? That's incredible. That's why it says Chayav Adam Levarech Alarak Hashem Shumavarech Alatova. Usually, it's taken to mean a person's obligated to realize it's all from Hashem, whether it's good or bad. But it means when a person has bad, they have to realize that there's that there's merit to it, and this is a way now they have to serve Hashem, no matter what's going on. And, you know, we're going through very crazy times now in our in our life, and uh, a lot of people are having really stressful uh, lives right now. People aren't sleeping. That's why I'm, I'm being in touch with people, and they're all telling me these kind of stories. But a lot of people made the best out of tough times, and you could even be joyous. They say about Rav Shach, it says, I saw this in the Yosef Lekach, they say about Rav Shach, that as a young man, before he was married, he was off in yeshiva, and he had a very, very impoverished existence. He didn't have a blanket at night until many years into his wandering. Somebody donated him a blanket. He, he didn't know where he would eat. Sometimes he, he went hungry because he didn't have enough people uh, to eat by during the week. And on Shabbos, they said many times he didn't even eat shalashidas. He figured out it's, it's rabbinic. And it says it's better to not go take staka than to um, than to add on to embellish your Shabbos. So he felt he didn't even have to go for Shalshidas once he was invited. And so poor, he had a torn shirt. He would cover himself with his jacket. And uh, in order to not show the torn shirt, he was missing soles in his shoes and a lot of different difficulties. And he said later on, you know, he became the famous Rav Shach, the leader of his generation, and he looks back at those days and he says, those are the best years of my life. He would always tell the story of how he lived at Simcha's. When he had a family celebration, he would gather the children. He told them what he had to do without and how he, those were special years because he said they're very spiritual. He didn't have anything else to contend with. And he just was focused on his growth in Torah and fear of heaven. There's another story that's a similar story. They'd say about the mother of, of, I believe it's Yitzchak Weinstein, who was a son-in-law of the Briska Rav. This particular mother was, uh, she lost her husband, and um, her son was close to Bar Mitzvah, and he left home to go to Yeshiva. And it must have been very hard years for him. He had to go away from home at a young age, went to Yeshiva, far away from home. And during those the time that he lived, there were often the communists would take over certain uh, shuls or certain batemedrish, certain yeshivas. That would be their hideout to fight with the Bolsheviks. You know, so they would uh, take over places and you had to move over. You had to let them take over, even if you were a yeshiva. So in his yeshiva, there were communists occupying some areas. And the word got out that one bucher got killed by gunshots. Now, I don't know what happened with this bucher, who, what, but in any, any case, the word got out. His mother heard about it, and she was beside herself. You know, she, she didn't hear from her son in a long time. She didn't know if he was alive or dead. 
she was very worried about her child. You know, off in the yeshiva somewhere, and the report was that, that someone was killed in that yeshiva. After several weeks, though, people, neighbors saw her, and they said she looked very joyous. They asked her, why are you so happy? Did you hear from your son? Is he okay? She said, I didn't hear from my son, but I decided if he's a communist, then I shouldn't be mourning his death. That's how she looked at it. Now, right or wrong, that's not the point, but the point is that she put it into a religious perspective and was able to carry on. That's why her son decided, you know, deserved to marry into the Brisker dynasty because uh, she decided to just view it like, okay, if, uh, if that's what is meant to happen and if he didn't deserve it, then I don't have to mourn over him. Like to divorce her feelings, her personal feelings from what Hashem wants is a very big task and she managed to do it. It, it, but she didn't do it immediately. A lot of times we're tested. Our initial reactions, I heard from several uh, Rabbanim over the years, that our initial reactions in our generation are not judged. You know, like we're, like um, Avram Avino perhaps would have been, but not us. So that's the good news. <laughs> but after a few weeks, for her to come to that conclusion is really strength, strength of character, amazing. So that, that so we learned two things so far. We've learned that using time is so important. Now it's a commodity and we have to use it properly. And that all for good, like she, she took the negative, turned it into positive. And according to Rosham Shodran, she even was joyous, even when there were negative times, because all she cared about was what Hashem wants. Okay, let's move on to the next idea about Sarah, about her persona. The Be'er Yosef tells us that Sarah had another name, if you remember. I don't know if anybody knows that can chat right now and tell me. Let's see if anyone's brilliant. Rosie, I, I'm expecting you to come up with this one. Okay, if you don't, then I give you five seconds, and otherwise I'm going to give it away what her other name was that she was referred to. Sarai, I'm Kolchai. Nope, another name. Is it Yiska? Okay, you're right, Yiska. Okay, and yeah. the you got it. Also, why was she called Yiska? Because there's two, there's two interpretations why Sarah was referred to as Yiska. One, Shesachsa Beruach HaKodesh. Soche means to see, to be able to see in the distance. She was able to see, prophesize. She was able to prophesy. That's why her other name was Yiska. She had a very strong element of prophecy. And this is in Gemara Megillah. It also says, Davar Acher. Now, Sacha, the, the root of the word Yiska, is either which means to prophesize or see in Aramaic, or Sacha, means to, to speak. So, you know, it's not for naught that they sound alike because there's a whole thing about etymology, or Hirsch is very big on that. The, the, the same root that everyone was talking about how beautiful she was. So we're going to be answering now, why is beauty and spirituality mentioned by Rashi? Because that's parallel to the question we asked before, that she was with sin like 20, and she was with beauty like 7. Okay, so he mentions she was the, most, the four of the most beautiful looking women in the world. In fact, to the point where it says in the Gemara that other women look like monkeys compared to her. <laughs> and isn't this the dream woman for any yeshiva bachar from Lakewood today? Right now, although she was so good looking, it made no impression on her whatsoever. No impression whatsoever. Now, I have to mention here uh, something I heard years ago from Rabbi Orlowick Shlita, who's the Mashkiach of Torah Or in Yerushalayim. And he said the following. He said his observation is the degree that a person is beautiful, a girl, because he had to deal with all these guys that were in the parsha of Shaduchim, and he was their advisor. And he said, the more beautiful the girl, the less the character. That's his observation. <laughs> that, you know, like, a big, why? And I, it can parallel with this, something I once heard years ago. They took a study of high school students, and they said that the ones that excelled in beauty, or, or this was a boys who was a secular study, they said the ones that were like made the sports teams, or the beautiful ones, or the brilliant ones, all three of these groups did not fare as well in later life as the average Joe or Jill or Yankel or Sarah, they, they fared much better in life than these exceptional people. Why? Because they said 
that let's say a brilliant kid, all they do in class, you know, like you always, all of you must have experienced a brilliant kid in your class. So the kid comes up and they're saying, oh, I only got a 97 this time. You know, so they, 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 they you know, they're relying on, you know, that's what they relied on, their, they, uh, their grades, and they were lauded for the grades. They didn't have time for personal growth because they're too busy, you know, thinking how brilliant they are. Or the sports people just had to rely on their energy. And the people with beauty, the more beautiful they were, everyone was just, you know, fawning on them, how beautiful they are. And they never had a chance to develop a deep character, and often that's the case. So, really, Sarah who had such a high level of, of, of nevuah, of prophecy, you know, and, and better than her husband, better than Avram, she was beautiful, but it didn't deter. In fact, she was beautiful like seven, not like 20. The seven-year-old is also beautiful, no, no stretch marks, no wrinkles, no nothing yet. At the same time, she, uh, the seven-year-old is pure. That's why she was compared to seven and not to a 20-year-old. You know, she was out blemish, and her 20-year-old, was, she was like, you know, she was pure like a 7-year-old. And at the same time, her 100-year-old, that's another point that the Barry Yosef mentions. Usually there's an advantage of being young and an advantage of being old. The advantage of youth is that youth is charged. They've got this energy. They're going to change the world. They're going to do all these types of things. Um, and there's one little small deterrent there, and that is that they're very impulsive. They haven't had the what we call in Hebrew, Yishuv Hadas. They haven't had the, they're not settled like people with more experience in life. And they just charge ahead and sometimes make stupid mistakes, right? Um, we always say it's wasted on the young. You know, too bad we didn't have that energy in old age. You know, Hashem has that sense of humor. In old age, we don't have this, you know, here with all the experience behind us, we should be charging around. And they should be the ones sitting in, you know, chairs, you know, but it doesn't work like that in life. But in any case, in old age, um, people have the de decision-making possibility, you know, potential, but they lack sometimes that alacrity and that freshness that the youth possess. Now, Sarah had both. So at 100, she was like 20. So, you know, that means she had the qualities of both ages, you know. They, uh, in fact, they say, the Gemara, that there was a coin produced by Abraham, which on one side, it's either a picture or just words, of a Bachar and Basula, of a young man and a young woman. The other side was Zakain and Zakaina. There was an elderly man and an elderly wife. And it was supposed to represent Sarah and Avraham, who had both traits. You know, like um, Rav Victor Miller, I mentioned this once before, a while back, a year ago maybe. Um, Rav Victor Miller once had, they made like some type of dinner for his son-in-law, Rabbi Brog. He should rest in peace. I think he had just turned 60. And where Victor Miller said to him, Mitfrischkeit, you should go ahead now, be, refresh yourself, because this is what an older person needs to hear. Like, get back that we all inside have the energy. Maybe we don't physically express it like we did when we were young, but we all feel like we're still young inside. Everybody feels like that. And we should express it as much as we can in our activities, you know, that we should be able to, like it says, Ella Bakarata Abraham, Abraham ran to the cattle. Uh, you know, and he said, hurry up and make, uh, make, make bread. He told his wife when they had the guests. So they had the alacrity, a sadic run, you know, like on one hand, they're very composed and calm, but they have the alacrity to keep pushing and keep moving. They say Rabbi Victor Miller, most of his successes were after the age of 60. That's when he was, became the prolific author and speaker was after 60. Rob Dessler also became famous after the age of 60. So people, you know, have to maintain that when they get older. And yet the young people have to try to calm down and, and listen to reason when they do something. And Sarah possessed both. And that's, that's, that's again, with perfection of character, how she maintained her purity even at an older age. Now, so now the next thing that I'd like to talk about is, you know, it says her name was Sarah. Originally it was Sarai, and then it became Sarah. And Sarai, um, you know, she was, if, if, does anyone know who was her father? <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. Okay. There were two, she was Avram's niece. Avram had two brothers. One was named Nahor. Nahor was the father of Lot. And his other brother was Haran. Haran was Sarah's father. 
Uh, Haran, if you remember, um, was the one that he saw Avram take the lead of throwing himself into the fiery furnace. So then Haran copied it and he threw himself into the fiery furnace. So the, um, the, uh, we find that, um, that it, it was still something, they, a lot of them, unfortunately, say it was still something to his credit. At least he chose the good way, even though it was like copying after he saw the good results. It wasn't the great, you know, he didn't achieve what his brother did, but he still was a great action to give, give of himself up in order to help others, in order to, for Hashem's causes, rather. Now, so she, she her name originally was Sarai. Sarah in general means like to be a ruler, princess. But Sarai means, it says in uh, Brachas, Bichila Nasa Sarai Umasa. In beginning, she was like a leader of her people. Levasof Nasa Sarah Lakol Haolam. At the end, she became the ruler of the entire world. Now, what does it mean to become a ruler? Obviously, like we don't see her sitting on a throne, and she's definitely not like the royal family over there in England. Um, what does it mean that she ruled the world? It means, oh, we always find this, like by Shevet Yehuda, we find this. What is a Jewish monarch? Usually there's two functions. The first function I'll just say quickly, and because we're not dealing with that tonight. The first function usually is, contrary to public opinion, the way the world looks at a Jewish monarch, uh, at a monarch, monarch usually is somebody that everyone lauds them and says how great they are. We believe that a monarch is a public servant. He's supposed to be helping others. He's not supposed to be thinking of himself. That's the purpose of a Jewish monarch. He's supposed to be, he's now in, in you know, in, he's been enabled to, you know, take care of, of other people. But another function of a monarch, a monarch, contrary to the way the world looks at it, the, the world looks at it as a monarch is somebody that rules over others. We say a monarch, first and foremost, has to rule over himself. If you can't control yourself, how good? That's why I was a little upset when Bill Clinton was not impeached, <laughs> contrary to them impeaching Trump. Because, you know, if you can't control yourself, how are you supposed to lead a whole country? How can you be entrusted with royal secrets or state secrets if you can't control yourself? So, you know, but our Jewish leaders have always embodied this, of the self-control. Sarah lived for most of her life in Kiryat Arba, Bihadon, and they were doing fear of work. They didn't fall prey to dangers of fear. You know, mute themselves. I'm hearing crunching or something like that going on. Whoever you are, enjoy, but uh, please mute yourself. Okay, anyways, so, um, anyway, so the thing is that um, a monarch, we said, rules over themselves and they don't follow, they don't follow the. What that is, unless it's a fire burning, I don't know, God forbid. Sarah means, according to Nissan Alpert, Zasal, he says, to prevail, to maintain, to rest, or to dwell. That's, you know, you prevail. Like, that's a big problem that some cure groups have sometimes, that a lot of rabbinim took the task. Prisons shouldn't go alone to a city and think they won't fall prey to copying the natives. Uh, Sarah, though, was on such a madrega with her husband. They lived in this neighborhood of all these people doing contrary to what they were doing. And yet she never was affected by her environment. That's, that's incredible. She's unaffected. And it's not for naught in her merit, they said, of her 127 years, Esther ruled over 127 countries because Esther also did not give in. She was not affected by the culture around her, despite her being a princess. Despite her being taken by the king, she never gave up her Yiddish mama behavior from Meisharim that she had before becoming a queen. Okay, so so far, what we've been talking about is Sarah utilizing her life, consecrating her time, using the time properly, keeping her joy, keeping her simcha, um, no matter what, all the years, and and, and 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 taking the negative, transforming it to a positive, and even more than that, Rosham Shogun simcha, retaining her purity ruling over herself, and thus she was able to rule over others. And and her beauty, we said, contrary to how most people that's affected by their beauty, she was unaffected by that as well, and she was still keeping her purity of spirit and her dedication to Hashem and not letting the wind blow her all over the place. 
Jim Miller said something in last week's Parsha that I read. If there, any of you have heard it, too bad. You're going to have to hear it for the next five minutes because I thought it was incredible. He asked the question, this is not about Sarah, but it has to do with the whole idea of being affected by your environment. He talks about last week's Parsha. We find that the wife of Lot, uh, when they were escaping Sodom, you know, in the merit of Avram, they, they, got, they were saved. And the Malach, the angel that was in charge of destroying Sodom, warns them, don't turn back. I'm about to destroy this wicked place, the place where it was all about material pleasures and selfishness. I'm about to destroy Sodom. Don't look back. Anyone that looks back is going to be destroyed. The wife of Lot can't help herself. She turns around and she turns into a pillar of salt. You know, that's the Dead Sea that we see today. The Dead Sea has no vegetation around it at all because we believe that was the former site of Sodom. And some people said they even knew way back when that people knew where the pillar was that represented Lot's wife. I don't know if we know it anymore today. But uh, in any case, it was. And that was a pretty horrible death. It's like sulfur and all those elements that go into salt that, you know, they call chemical destruction. Um, now, what did she do so bad, Astra Victor Miller? What did she do that she looked out back? What was wrong with that? He says what was, there was something wrong with that. He said, here, you're warned that this place is bad for you. And what did you do? You, you connected yourself to it. You still had, she still felt a connection, a kinship with the, the you know, her hometown, Sodom. And she felt she has to have one last look. That here you're being saved because you're going on with your life and you're not letting yourself get attached to it. And that attachment is what cost her her life. She, she let herself get attached to a place that was considered evil. And you're not supposed to look back and be influenced. Victor Miller mentions that, you know, he comes across very strong and here it comes. He said, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin that says, Hakore Sfarim Chitzonim, whoever reads secular books, and Rashi says there, Sifri Agavim, like immoral things. Immoral things. He has no portion in the world to come. And he says, and we bring into our homes today's equivalent. Here it is, the potential for all evil, right there, sitting by us from, from the moment we wake up in the morning till the moment we go to sleep. What are we doing with it? Are we just listening to Shiorim all day? Is that what we're doing? We have to realize that influence and sorrow rose above it, but you can't just put it in your face. That's what Lot's wife did. And she, she in other words, if you, whatever you connect with, like whatever you affiliate yourself with is what you're judged by. At the end, let's say you were found, let's give it a crazy example. You're found in a bar. Uh, you just happened to go in, you needed uh, the restroom or I don't know, you needed something. And then all of a sudden the police come in and raid the whole place. You say, I just came in. You're gonna be. You're gonna have to give a din v'cheshbon because you were there on site. If we're, you know, getting, hooking ourselves up to, attaching ourselves to certain things that are not so kosher, this is what we're pledging allegiance to, so to speak. This is what we're looking at. What we're, what we're, what we're focusing our time on. She consecrated all her moments. Let's try to consecrate all our moments and not let things affect us, but rather rise above the elements that are around us. And to put ourselves into a situation where you have to rise yourself above it is difficult. Especially women. Or Victor Miller says in another place, now there's a Gemara that a lot of people always wanted to understand. It says, Nashim Datan Kalos, that women have light brains. That's literally what it means. A lot of people think that's so offensive. It sounds like, you know, that women are, you know, lightweights when it comes to brains that somehow we didn't get them when they passed them out. Um, but he explains, there's many explanations for this, by the way, but he explains, she expl he explains it this way. He says, all it means is that a woman is more easily persuaded than a man. Like a woman will like say, okay, you get it. Okay. That's why they say, if you want Shalom bias to work, you first start with the woman because she'll give any before the man will. Men kind of stick their, you know, stick to their guns. They don't want to give in. They, they, there's a certain, like, you know, they could be, um, stubborn, but a woman has the capacity to give in more than a man. So even more, so Sarah should be even more lauded that she didn't give in to follow the norms of Kiryat Arba, that she did her own thing and she wasn't influenced. Remember, Victor Miller says that Paris is the Sodom of today. That's what he says. Who are, whose norms are we following? 
any case, but who knows where Paris is? It's, they're all falling under. They're all on lockdown. So we just see the whole world means nothing right now. It's absolutely nothing. Just as an aside, I should mention this because of, um, you know, everybody I know that's really hooked on the news is not sleeping at night right now because we're going through times where every second is, is changing. It's really like you really feel like you're in pre-messianic era, you know, but if people feel like the news is really bothering them, they shouldn't, they shouldn't listen to the news because all the news is is depressing and, and, and all the horrible things going on and the injustices in life. And we have to remember we have a God in heaven that's holding our hand through all this and we shouldn't let it get to us and, and um, you know, and, and shouldn't be affected. We shouldn't be affected by all the things going on in the world. You know, the more we're affected, you say, oh, no, this can happen and that can happen. But anything can happen. Anything can happen at any given moment, just like nobody expected that Tuck Shinpei, we'd have the coronavirus. Nobody knows what's going to happen the next minute. We see every minute something else is going on. So I don't think we should get too much into the news if we feel it's really getting to us, which a lot of people are telling me it is getting to them because it's really, you know, something. Okay, so that's that's explaining all that about Sarah, about her, her not being affected by her environment, and that's why she's called Sarah, and that. And it was changed from Sarai. Let's talk about now the affliction thing with um, with uh, Hagar. Let's turn to that episode and see how we can understand Sarah's behavior there. So, first of all, we're told by many of the Mephorshim, I didn't write this down, I forgot to write down who says this, but a lot of the earlier commentaries say that Hagar conceived immediately. The reason was that this was any impurity Avram had from his past life, from being a son of an idolater, was passed until Yishmael. So Hagar had to conceive immediately, so they didn't have like a long uh, effort together. They didn't, you know, it was in order that Hagar is just like an afterthought. Hagar wasn't his wife. She was a, like a concubine. She wasn't the main wife of Avraham. And what happened was when she started feeling too big for her britches and she started behaving in a manner, in a condescending manner towards Sarah, this was opposite the whole plan of creation, really. Because Hagar originally was a princess in Egypt, in Mitzrayim. She saw, heard about Avram and Sarah, and she says, I'd rather serve them than to be a leader in Egypt. That's very special. And Hagar even saw Malachim. She had prophecy. Hagar was not small change. However, as soon as she gets pregnant, she's not, she's being dismissive of Sarah, who was her Rebbe. Sarah's her, her connection to Hashem. Sarah was greater than her. There's no question about that. Her greater in prophecy, greater in character, and greater in many things. I mean, we're not going to go into Hagar too much tonight, but there was a very big lowliness of Hagar. You even see it how she treated her own child. Like she was really, there was a lot of self-centeredness there. In any case, when she became dismissive, then we're going out of order, and this can't be progeny for Avram. So Sarah complains to Avram, says, you have to correct this. This is not where it belongs. So she supposedly afflicted. She afflicted Hagar. And we're told, the Ramban tells us about this activity. Um, where is this? Oh, I'm looking at the wrong Ramban. Okay, let's see if I wrote down the exact Lushan of the, no, I did not write down Lushan of the Ramban, please forgive me. But in any case, the Ramban tells us, to paraphrase, the Ramban says, because of the affliction that Sarah did to Hagar, and that Avram let it happen, both of them did a sin. Chait, he says, not avon, not a, on purpose sin, but a sin by accident. And he said, because of that, the Jewish people will be afflicted by Ishmael. Because of what Sarah did wrong. Now, what did Sarah do wrong? So, what Sarah did wrong was, I'm just trying to find where it is. Okay. What Sarah did wrong, according to the Mikdash Halevi, he brings down that Sarah had good intentions. She had to put her in her place. And we, you know, in Revolba, I'm just interrupting in the middle, he says, we cannot imagine her afflicting Hagar means she took a, a whip and just started beating her brains out. That, we cannot imagine our matriarch doing such a thing. There's even a story of Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol, who was much after Sarah and was considered as great as Sarah. He's one of the ten um, people that were 
put to death by the Romans that we read about him on, on Yom Kippur and on Tisha B'Av. It was one of the Asara Haruge Malchus. And Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol, he asked a colleague of his, why do you think that we're being put to death? And he said, maybe we kept an orphan waiting. Maybe our servant told the orphan we were busy eating and we kept them waiting or we kept an almana, we kept a, a widow waiting. And then Rabbi Shmuel said, if that's the case, then we deserve the death penalty. So the keep, keeping somebody waiting was considered affliction, according to Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol. So obviously this affliction of Sarah was not like she just hit her, but, you know, definitely there was some type of putting her in her place, but she went too far. There was some personal agenda mixed in, in the most minute way. And that personal agenda is called by the Torah affliction, because a person as great as her is taken to task for the smallest thing. And um, we have to be put in our place to atone for it. But, you know, it's a very similar. Revolva says this is very similar to what Noah did to Ham. Ham, you know, disgraced Noah, and it's his, it's his father, right? So he was cursed to be a servant to his, to his brothers forever. He's going to be a servant. And this was to atone for the fact that he was not acting in the proper positioning. He wasn't subservient to the greater one in the family. So therefore, he has to be subservient. So what Sarah did and said, whatever it was, was proper, but there was some tiny degree of perhaps jealousy or whatever mixed in that she didn't even realize. And that is what brought, that was, that was considered a sin. We have to learn from this something very important, how careful we have to be when we have to tell somebody something negative. Like you have to chastise a child. You have to give muster to your child or, you know, something husband and wife even or friends or siblings or anybody. We have to say something. <laughs> you look how you can't get holier than that woman. You know, here she had good intentions with Hagar. She just wanted to put this straighten this problem out. So it would be in the proper order because if Hagar is not going to subjugate herself to Sarah, then we're not achieving the goal of Avram's children. They're not, you know, it's supposed to be under the um, Aegis of Avraham. He's supposed to be the leader in this hierarchy. And under all that, it's supposed to be Sarah and then Hagar. And that's how it's supposed to go. It's, it's, it's according to purity, according to, you know, uh, righteousness. So when it's out of order and when other people around us are out of order, sometimes we have to say something or other, but we have to be so careful not to cause extra pain or hurt that's not necessary. Like it says, 39 mal, there's a sin, is a, is an aver in the Torah, Baltosif. If somebody is obligated 39 lashes and you give them 40 accidentally, you you committed a sin. And this is the same thing with us. I mean, it's it's be taken in a muster way. If we give somebody more affliction that's coming than that's coming to them, really, we have to we're going to have to you know say something about that. And boy, it's a lot to think about on Yom Kippur. You know, the, all the things we did with our children, you know, especially when you're in a position of power, like being a parent or whatever it is, or principals beware. How many principals or teachers have embarrassed a child in public? And, oh, I can, you know, whatever. You know, it's it's a position that could be abused, you know. And, and, and just because in this world they look like they have power. But, boy, that's it's it, it, it your cause somebody else pain, you know. It's something we have to be worried about. Okay, so that's the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Now, how about the question of Sarah being taken against her will to the two kings? Why did she have to be subjugated to attest in that fashion? So we actually have an answer from from a great person who's Nifter this week, Rav Hagayin, Rav David Feinstein, Zechetzadik Lavracha, and that's um, a big loss to the North American Jewry. In any case, he speaks about it right here. We, it's, it's good to say something, and then we could, uh, you know, the shiva, something about something he said, and he has a it's something that we can learn from about why Sarah had to be taken in this manner. It says that he brings down the Tanchuma that says it was a big test for Sarah and for Avram that she was taken, you know, from him. And it was similar to that of Esther being taken. And in the case of Esther being taken from Mordechai, he every day showed up at the palace to see how she was doing at the harem even was showing up. And he realized it was for the benefit of the Jewish people. Mordechai realized that. So he that's why he was so so on top of the situation, what was going to happen to Esther, because he realized this doesn't happen every day, that a lady from B'nai Brak is taken to the harem of Achashverosh. You know, so he realized there must be some purpose behind all of this. Okay, so now, so we find that um, 
What was the purpose here with Sarah? There was a purpose. The purpose, he says, in Parshas Pinchas, we find um, that the whole lineage of the Jewish people is written down. And every time we find a family written down, it would have a hey at the beginning and a yud at the end of the word, like ha-mizrahi, ha-something. It would always be described that way. And that's two letters of Hashem's name. Why? Because he said, in Egypt, every woman was pure. There was not one Jewish woman that lost her purity of the lineage all the way back from Avram and Sarah. Every single Jew, Jewish woman did not do anything except this one woman, Shlomis Bas Dibri, was the only person that went against all this. And Shlomis Bas Dibri had a child. But everybody else had a pure lineage, not from any Egyptian, not any mixing up or anything like that. Where did this come from? Sir David Feinstein suggests, he says, how was it so chaste? He says, you know, Sarah, when she went through it, it must have looked like a horrible situation. Horrible, like a tzedekist like this being taken by some, you know, person like this, such a brute of a man uh, taken to his, his harem and all that. But what happened was they each got punished and they, they were terrified. They, they, didn't, they didn't touch Sarah and they were terrified of the whole situation. They got terribly punished and they rewarded Avram with a lot of money. So he left their homes that everyone was very aware of the punishments and everyone was very aware of the prize. So what happened? He suggests, Rev. David Feinstein, the reason why every woman, because think of the possibilities. Here was a nation enslaved in Egypt. How, how is it that the women stayed pure? Come on, they could be forced by Egyptian men because they were the, they were the, the servants. They were the slave force. He suggests because it was public, what happened with Sarah Imenu in Mitzrayim to the Kiparo. So even 210 years later, no one in Egypt dared touch a Jewish woman. That's how far-reaching the consequences were of Sarah's test. So you can imagine what she went through, the suffering she went through. It really helped her whole progeny after her. And he says, we have to regard any suffering we go through as well. You never know. It could be from a past life we're going through suffering. Or it could be to atone. We need soap and shampoo, as the Bittachan Outlines always says, soap and shampoo to clean ourselves up from sins. But could even, we all don't know the far-reaching consequences of any test and travail that we go through, how far-reaching it could be to our, you know, to children, grandchildren. And this is what happened with Sari Menu, that no, her, at the end, she was the purest of the pure because of her, even though she was subjected to a test. So that's a very important lesson. What about laughter? Let's talk about laughter. Now, we say that Avram laughed, wasn't taken to task. Called, Yitzchak is called, he will laugh. And yet Sarah was taken to task for laughing. So if Shimshon Pincus, the Koran Lebracha, tells us the following. He says, there's a Pasuk in Kohelas, Ki kikol hasirim tachas hasir, just like the noise that's made under a pot when a pot is bubbling. Kain seal. That's how laughter is with a fool. Now let's explain that Pasuk and let's, apply it to Sarah laughing. Okay, first of all, he brings down from the Vilna Gon, or brings down a medrash. The Vilna Gon says that there's a medrash that the fruit trees were asked why when you take wood from a fruit tree, apparently the wood does not crackle in a fire like regular trees do when they're put in a fire, you know, used for a, a bonfire. Um, so the, the fruit says, says in the, in the medrash, it says fruit trees say, we know who we are. We don't have to crack aloud. We know who we are. The other trees, they have thorns. They don't grow fruit like we do. So they have to make more noise. So too, the Vilna says that man is better than an animal. He doesn't have to sound off about it. Right. He says, the, the, the Vilna Gon says something cryptic. He says that a man has wisdom, but a fool, a foolish man, has laughter. Now, it doesn't mean a person can't laugh. We're going to qualify this in a minute. Animals can't laugh. Therefore, uh, a fool can laugh to show that he's different than the animal. I'm, I, he talks more, let's say, that a wise person watches what he says. A fool doesn't necessarily watch what he says. So I guess when he's under the influence He's in a drunken stupor like our former mayor was. Um, so when somebody's in that situation, um, they can, they can, you know, they show they're different from an animal because they can laugh and an animal can't laugh. An animal, by the way, also can't smile. Um, 
So now, what, what does this mean? So Rav Shimshon Pincus explains the Vilna Gaon. He says that man's greater than an animal in two ways. One is that we have wisdom, and the second is we can have laughter. An animal doesn't smile or laugh. What's the point of it? What's the idea of laughter? Like I say, you take a kid. A kid is like a fool in certain ways. They don't have so much das. You know what? how many children would laugh? Let's say there'd be a man with a clean suit. He looks impeccable. He's walking down the street, and all of a sudden he trips and he falls into a thing of mud. A lot of kids would laugh at that. Because what's the, what do people laugh about? They laugh when something is like, I can't believe it. That's what it is. Like a, a story ends in a weird way, like all of a sudden, whatever. It makes you laugh because you don't believe this could happen. It's so like something is amazing, incredible. You know, now older people control themselves. We wouldn't laugh if we saw somebody fall because we think how he feels and how his suit's all damaged and must feel so embarrassed. But a young child that's foolish all they think about is, oh, that's so funny, you know. They had so many stupid cartoons and things like that in the olden days, like, you know, people falling, getting hit by a tornado, I don't know, whatever it was. You know, those kind of things is, is you know, shows that that's so funny. Really, though, laughing and, and smiling is like an aha moment that animals don't have. By animal, if it eats a birthday cake or if it eats a straw, it doesn't matter to him. He's just filling his stomach. So human being, there's a discernment of everything. Everything, you know, I, this was expensive. This is not expensive. This is for Shabbos. This is not for Shabbos. This is, um, there, you know, it says, Asher Yatsaras Adam B'chachma. He created man with wisdom. According to some of the Meforshim, wisdom means the wisdom of man. Man has a, can discern things. And that's why a person has potential of laughing more than an animal. Now, obviously, when it says, like uh, a fool's laughter is like the sound of a of the pot boiling, which means that it's all evaporating, all that you know steam is rising. Because his what does he laugh about? Stupid things. He's laughing because he has to get into all kinds of stupid things to make himself happy, to escape reality. You know, usually you're reading some somebody else's troubles, or you're you know <laughs> going to the nearest cannabis store, which is, there's one in every block in Toronto right now. Or uh, where I'm from in Detroit, there was like, if you go downtown Detroit, there's a liquor store at every corner. <laughs> Shows what they're, and you go to Europe, they're all in their pubs. So, I mean, that's what most people are laughing over, you know, like the, the, the great times when you're losing your mind. You know, like that, that's what the world is like today. That's the world, you know, it's unfortunate, you know. So, so that's what it means, a laugh of exil. Uh, for us to laugh is wonderful. It says, Az Yimale Schopinu, when Mashiach will come, we're going to be full of laughter. And we called him Yitzchak. Yitzchak means, who would ever believe that Sarah would conceive? Who would ever believe it? You know, this is the proof in the pudding. A woman that was impossible to, to, to conceive, and a, a man impossible to conceive, in old age, have a child. And this defines the Jewish people. He's the progeny of Avram and Sarah. He's of our definition. Who says that life should hold us back? Now, when a person has wisdom, the ultimate in wisdom, says Rashimshin Pincus, that's out, is for a person to realize that there's a creator. Because let's say, if you're really smart, you say, where did this egg come from? I got it in the store. But where did it really come from? It came from the farm. And where did the farm get it? Well, from the chicken. And then, you know, and we go all the way back. Anyone that decides to use their wisdom has to fall upon a creator. If he doesn't fall upon a creator, he's, he's stuck midway in his wisdom. He didn't get all the way to the ultimate. And wisdom really means to feel it, not just to, to know it once in a blue moon, you know, and get back, you know, and then start worrying about the doctors and the lawyers and everybody else that's supposed to help us out in life. To realize that ain't no Nevada, really the ultimate is, the reason it says that Hashem doesn't have a body, says Hashem Shempinkas, is to teach us there's no limits. There's no physical limitations whatsoever. He's involved in everything that we experience, and he can do anything. And that's the laughter. And that's why Abraham laughed when he heard he was going to have a child, because he realized the wisdom, uncanny wisdom of Hashem. And, and, and that's, it, that's the koach hachidu, should call it, something that could be renewed, something that's a, a, new, a new idea. Now, her problem, Sarah's problem, was not laughing. First of all, it said, Bakir Bash. She laughed inside. She never even showed laughter. And she, was, she, didn't, she denied it, not because um, she was a liar, or she denied it because she wasn't even aware of it. It meant that in her laughter, laughter can either be because a person cannot believe it. And there was a, when Avram heard, he heard it from Hashem and he knew it was true. But Sarah, her excuses, and I saw some of them before Hashem, she didn't hear it from Hashem. She heard it from 
three people look like people, low lives. They come to and they say, a year from now, lady, 90-year-old lady, you're having a baby. So, you know, she a little bit dismissed it. Says Rav, Rav Nissen Alpert, she should have said, well, he brings down from the Ramban. What she did wrong was she should have said, Amen, Ken Yehi Ratzon. That's what she did wrong. Now, that's a high level. We wouldn't, we wouldn't say that most of the time. If some person, a stranger comes up to you and says, you should have a baby. You're 90 years old. Most people would say, yeah, sure. She, from any source, she, she, the source is what bothered her. Avram had it directly from Hashem, so you're not going to laugh too hard. He, his laugh was a pure laugh. There's nothing wrong with laughing. We're supposed to laugh and smile because that shows we enjoy life and all the, we're no, noticing the nuances. We're noticing all the beauty of life and how things are changing for the good. You know, we, that's what makes us laugh as, as, as a wise person. As a, as a fool, you laugh in escaping life, but a wise person should laugh at life. So that's why it says, Lama lay more. She doubted the messenger. She doubted the messenger. And that could be expected. You know, you some person, stranger, walks into your life, tells you something. How can you, how do you know? But we're never so disposed to dismiss anything. Anything is possible, and that's her little fault with that. So, so far, we've cleared up everything except for the Akeda. All our first four questions were cleared up. We spoke about Sarah with the terrifying incident in order for her children. We spoke about her laughter. The laughter really is good to laugh, but the laughter should mean we see something new, something special. It's a special quality a human being has. But a wise person doesn't just laugh at stupid things all the time. And her laughter, in that case, a little bit down. Outing the messenger. We find also her life that she used it. She didn't abuse it. She, it took all the, those years and she made them all good despite the fact that she was beautiful and despite the fact that she suffered, she overcame everything. She was unaffected by her environment. She didn't get attached to the, the crazy world around her. Um, now, let's ask, answer the question about the Akeda. I, I indulge you for five more minutes if I indulge your patience. Sorry, this took a little longer because I really tackled a little too many topics. A little bit too ambitious this time, I believe. But in any case, it's still, there's a lot of wisdom to be learned from all of this. So in the Akeda, when we say that what, what bothered Sarah? Um, why did she die for the Akeda? And, and you know, and, and Avram didn't die from the Akeda when he heard it. And why is it that, why is it worded like that? Kimat Shalom Nishchat. Okay. So first of all, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the Chronal tells us the following important fact. And that is, a lot of times in life, we're tested. Sometimes in life, it's not a test. Sometimes we're meant to go through certain things and be affected by them in a negative way. And it's not our test. We don't know what is our test and what's not, so it's a bit of a problem. Uh, I'll give an example. He gives the example of, in Parshas Vayachi, all the, when, uh, they go to bury Yaakov Avinu in Marosamach Pela in Hebron and Asaph's standing there and everybody's, they're, 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 they're having a whole, uh, argument about whether to bury Yaakov there, whether it belongs to Asaph or Yaakov. And this one person, the son of Dan, Husham, he can't, he's hard of hearing and he started, he gets so upset the injustice that there's a, a, a corpse here that he's not, that's not being buried of, of, of the Hela Gazeta. And so he, he screams and he, he cuts off Asaph's head and that's what happens. What brought him to do it and nobody else? So says Rav Chaim Shpulevitz, when a person is accustomed to something, to, then it, he can pass a test easier. So they were getting accustomed to this whole quibbling over this whole thing of, of property rights and Husham couldn't hear it. So he was shook up more than they were because he wasn't prepared for it. They were more prepared. They got used to it. So in another situation, we come about testing. God always is fair in his tests. He gives us something difficult, but he usually in some way prepares us. He gives us good equivalent. For example, Abraham, when he was going to have the Akedah, he was told to travel for three days. And during the three days, Hashem's telling him, take your son. Which son? Your only son. I have two sons. And he's saying the son that you love. He's being prepared the whole time for the test. Now, it's not prepared totally. It's still a huge test. But he's being prepared. Sarah was not prepared at all. So says Reb Chaim Shbulevitz, it was not her test. 
And this is a good way to judge other people favorably. Let's say I always use an example for the Holocaust. You see certain people say even went crazy from the Holocaust. Why do you say maybe they didn't pass their test? It maybe wasn't their test. They weren't prepared for it. They just, it was a sudden thing. They would just lost their faculties. They just went crazy. Or people have other traumas in their life, and we can't judge somebody why they act a certain way when they could have been traumatized in earlier years. And um, so we don't know, you know, we, for another person, we don't know what's our test and what's not our test. But for ourselves, we have to assume everything's a test, and we have to try to pass our tests in life. But for Sarah, it was definitely written down it was not her test. That's why she died from it. She was meant to die at this experience, whereas Avraham was supposed to overcome this situation. Now, what, 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 what upset Sarah? So I believe certain of the Mephorshim um, on Rashi, the Gur Aryeh and the, um, uh, the Gur Aryeh, and I forgot who else, both say, they say the word there, the words used by Rashi, that he almost wasn't slaughtered. So a lot of the modern-day commentaries tell us, Bali Muster tell us, what was Sarah upset about that brought her death? She thought he was brought to the Akedah, and he didn't die. Maybe Hashem didn't accept him as a sacrifice. Maybe my son, who I groomed a whole life to be a servant to God, did not serve his mission. That did her in. That was her whole raison d'etre. That was her whole purpose in living. She couldn't live with herself thinking that her son maybe wasn't pure enough. That's the greatness of Sarah Imenu, and that's also encapsulated in her last day on earth. I thank you for listening. Tune in next week. Bring your friends, enemies, and anybody in between. It was a pleasure seeing all of you on the screen, even if I saw you briefly. And I wish you all a wonderful week. We should overcome all our challenges. We're living in very difficult times right now in many ways. And um, don't listen to the news too much if it bothers you because it's, uh, it's, it's very anti what we stand for. And I just wish you all the best, Mr. Shem. We'll see you next week. Same great Rivka Shabsa, who sacrifices her time to administer this. Same great class, same great Parsha. Thank you for listening.